they have been the punching bag of college football. And they don't deserve to be the punching bag this year. They are playing really well. I wonder who it is that's been the punching bag for a really long time. Is it Oklahoma? Is it Oklahoma's defense? Is it USC's defense? Is it the ACC? Is it the Pac-12? I don't know. You're going to have to listen in. Welcome in. It's a Monday edition of Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy. We so, so appreciate you being here. It's October 9th. We're almost halfway through the season, and we have so appreciate everybody that has come out in crazy numbers to take in what's been a terrific college football season up to this point. We continue to encourage all of you to like the podcast wherever you get it. Hit the thumbs up if you're on the ESPN YouTube channel. If you're on Spotify or Apple Podcast, if you could subscribe to the podcast, that'd be amazing. If you could subscribe to the ESPN College Football YouTube channel, that'd be amazing. We have so appreciated seeing our numbers go through the roof over the last couple months, and we hope that that continues here as we move through the halfway point. Mark Kubiak's here, Jack Foster's here, Jake Garcia's here, Dylan Barrett's here, Cohen Davis is here, Sharif Ali is here. We have a big, big contingent of people that love the sport with us today, and we appreciate them being here for us. As always, on a Monday, you know what we're going to do. We're going to go through the AP poll, make a couple tweaks with our own poll, give you the top 10. One team enters the top 10 after being nowhere near contention the last couple weeks, and we're going to do the 10 biggest takeaways in college football, several of which are matchup related, but we're going to talk about the Buckeyes. We're going to talk about the Wolverines. We're going to talk about the Crimson Tide. We're going to talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. And of course, we're going to talk about the Oklahoma Sooners, along with a few other takeaways along the way. Let's not waste any additional time. Let's get to the AP Top 10 and give you the Top 10 of our own right here on Always College Football. This week's AP poll, I think, pretty accurate representation of where we're at in college football. I do think it's hilarious that you can be, you know, ranked where you're ranked, teams in front of you lose, and then you actually stay put because you didn't play and get jumped by another team. But I'm okay with that because while I have tremendous amount of respect for Washington, Oregon, and Penn State, what I've seen from Oklahoma up to this point, would warrant maybe moving them, given the strength of competition and the quality win, ahead of the aforementioned team. So I don't have an issue with the AP poll whatsoever. Actually, had a pretty long, drawn-out debate at about probably 1.45 in the morning, watching both Arizona and USC talking about whether or not Miami should be ranked. They are. They're in at 25. I think appropriately so. They were... Basically, they didn't lose. They didn't do anything to warrant, I think, being kicked out of the top 25, for instance. It's just there were some egregious things that led to the result that actually happened. We'll talk about it. But they, I think, are appropriately still in the top 25. You get some big movers in there. Obviously, a couple teams moving way up. The biggest example being Oklahoma. Oklahoma now into the top five. Appropriately so, man, they deserve it. They did it on the field. And while it wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, they get a big win. And as we'll do on Wednesday in our eliminator pool, where we kind of group everybody up, you'll see that Oklahoma 
has gone from way on down group four, group five, all the way into group number two. Why? Big win, man. And getting it done in impressive fashion. Here's how I'd have them right now. As you guys know, this has really been in flux all season long. I haven't had Georgia at number one. Well, I have them the number one this week. They deserve to be. That was a completely dominant performance against what I think is a really good team. Maybe the best team they've played all year. Georgia gets done. Offense looks amazing. Defense, I think, still has some things to sort out, but they will get there. I am confident in Georgia's defense that they'll improve along the way. A lot of young guys still playing in that defense. A lot of guys that who are you know perennial backups that are now thrust into starting roles. They're going to get better, and I am confident in that. Michigan's at number two. Had a difficult time actually keeping Michigan at two. Really wanted to put them at one. I just think Minnesota's not very good. I think it's it's easy to say, well, you know, Michigan's dominated everybody and looked convincing. We'll talk about their performance in a minute, but man, Michigan, I think appropriately number two, those two to me have separated just a little bit based on what I've seen up to this point. Ohio State's at three. Their best win got a little worse, obviously, with Notre Dame falling, but Ohio State, I think when you look at what we saw in the second half, a resilient performance, the offense coming to life a little bit, and then defensively, they've still been excellent, man. They are st- they are doing a great job on that side of the ball. We'll talk about it, but they would be my number f- number three team at the moment. At number four, I'd have Oklahoma. Uh, they're now into the top five. I had them at nine last week, so it's not like this huge jump for me. I, I take them into the top five. I think that their best win against Texas is better than my number five team's best win. That would be Florida State over LSU. LSU, not great defensively right now. So I actually took Oklahoma and moved them ahead of the Seminoles for the moment. At number six, I have Penn State. Number seven, Washington. Number eight, Oregon. We'll figure those teams out very much here very soon. Obviously, Washington, Oregon, we'll find out this week. Louisville's in at number nine. Here's where there's a big, big discrepancy between where I'm at on the Cardinals and where the AP polls at on the Cardinals. If Ohio State's big win against Notre Dame has them all the way at number three, why wouldn't an even bigger and more convincing win against Notre Dame get them at least into the top 10? Jordan's amazing. They have a frustrating defense that can create some issues. So I think that Louisville deserves some consideration in the top 10. You're going to say, well, what about the game against NC State? Fair. We can pick and choose spots where they look lethargic, but ultimately it's about winning the game. Louisville's found a way to do so and did so in impressive fashion on Saturday night. And then at number 10, the highest-ranked one-loss team in the country, the Texas Longhorns. I still think, even though they did not perform well in the red zone, this is still a very good football team, and I'll explain why in just a minute. McElroy, if it wasn't USC, the brand name and the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, do you think they'd still be in the AP Top 10? No. (laughs) I think they still have an exciting brand of ball. I think, obviously, you have a Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback. But there are holes on this team, and we'll document those holes in a minute. There are issues on this team. There are significant issues. And I think Arizona, by the way, is better than what people realize. But still, man, to be at home as a three-touchdown favorite and have to go the distance against a team that you match up really well against, there are issues on this USC team. So if we're looking at the completeness of the team, just complete, top to bottom, they have this the sport's best player. No one's going to argue or deny that. Caleb Williams is the best player in the sport. He might not win the Heisman this year. But he's the best player. If I could have anybody in college football to play quarterback for me, I want Caleb Williams. So he's amazing. Didn't even have his best stuff this past weekend. Still delivered a lot of really great moments. Uh, I think if SC was, say, Cal with the best player in college football, we wouldn't treat them the same way that we've treated SC because of how SC performed at times last year. 
Every Monday, we do our top 10 takeaways. And this week, it was almost difficult to narrow it down to just 10 because I'm going to give you a bonus takeaway right off the top. Okay. Bonus takeaway just for free. This one's for free. Okay. The best college football game in America is the Red River Rivalry. Now, you're going to sit there and say, Greg, you are so biased. Well, maybe I am. I, I will admit I have attended, as a fan, eight Red River shootouts. That's what they were called when I was a fan and going to the game. I have attended a Red River rivalry one time. That was last year as a broadcaster. And even though last year is kind of the anomaly, to me, the just how collegial it feels. It just feels like you're stepping back in time with the State Fair of Texas and then you look to your left, you see the crimson and cream. And to your right, you see the burnt orange and white. It's just so amazing. And the fact that these two teams are back playing in meaningful, meaningful games. I had referenced going into last week's game. It was probably the biggest Red River game since 2008. When top five against top five, I believe Oklahoma was number one. Texas was number five. They pulled off. The upset, it's just an incredible, incredible game. And and for anyone that is just truly a diehard college football player, please, I urge you, I urge you. And I, this is not to take away from the Iron Bowl. It's not to take away from Georgia, Florida. It's not to take away from Ohio State, Michigan. It's uh, Those are all really special as well. But part of why I love this game is because of where it falls on the calendar. They're in... Early October, it's really kind of a put up or shut up time, like real or pretender. It's just, it's just the best, man. And I, I love that game. And I was so glad that it delivered to what hopefully was a massive audience on Saturday. That's your bonus. Takeaway number one Oklahoma is back, folks. Of course, Joe Tessitore's famous line from the 2015 game against Notre Dame is Texas is back. Well, no, 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 no. Oklahoma is back, folks. What a performance. And let's start with Dylan Gabriel. This was, he's played in rivalry games before, okay? Whether it be Bedlam last year, whether it's the, the war on I-4 between USF and UCF when he was back playing for UCF, but it's hard to ignore that this was probably the biggest game of his life. And there were a lot of Oklahoma fans that that had kind of grown a little frustrated, grown a little annoyed at maybe some in, inconsistencies. And, and why isn't the offense playing to the level it's probably capable of playing? And they've kind of directed their attention at Dylan Gabriel. And we talked about this a little bit on Sunday's show and just kind of our immediate recaps. Oklahoma is an amazingly high bar for quarterbacks, okay? An amazingly high bar. And we we know that whether it's Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, Sam Bradford, Jason White. I mean, the list goes on and on. They have an unreasonably high expectation of their quarterback spot. And it's fair because that's what they've gotten. That's what they should expect. But you think about this game for Dylan Gabriel. He takes the field down three, minute 17 on the clock in the Cotton Bowl where it's absolutely chaotic. And to come through with a drive like that and a touchdown pass that will be remembered forever. He had every single yard. He accounted for every yard on the game-winning touchdown drive. 
and to deliver the way he did and to see the pocket collapse as he found Nick Anderson in the back left corner of the end zone was amazing. It's just truly incredible what he was able to do in this game and was texting with some friends after the game, some NFL scouts. I'm like, dude, that guy is a gamer. He's tough as nails, played his tail off today and gave his team a chance and had one of the best performances ever by a Sooner quarterback against the Texas Longhorns. This game's always going to be about who's more efficient in the run game, though, in the Sooners, in large part due to Gabriel, what he was able to do. They outrushed the Texas Longhorns, 201 to 156. That means that 24 of the last 27 Red River shootouts, games, rivalries, whatever we're calling it, 24 of the last 27, the team that outrushed the opponent won the game. So it was clearly on display this past weekend, but maybe the biggest takeaway in this entire matchup was red zone. Red zone was everything in this one, right? Oklahoma, they get to the red zone six times. They go six for six and and score 34 points. Six for six and 34 points. They obviously took care of business in that part of the field. Let's talk, however, about the other side of the field because that is where the game was ultimately won and lost. Ted Roof, the defensive coordinator, um, they had a laundry list of things they needed to clean up in the offseason. So many different things they want to do better defensively, okay? But last year, they really struggled in the red zone defensively. Teams scored last year on 86 percent of their red zone penetrations and they found the end zone nearly two-thirds of the time 67.24 percent so we're not getting too deep in the weeds as far as the numbers but they were 104th in college football in the red zone defensively last year 104th anytime and we always say this on our crew when you hear triple didge where your rankings, triple dig, not good. Don't want that. 104th last year in red zone defense. Well, they held the Texas Longhorns. Three drives into the red zone, one score, three points. You had the Quinn Ewers interception, obviously. And then if you look at the goal line stand, that will probably live on forever when you think about what this rivalry has delivered in the past. Sooners, obviously, 27-20. Early fourth, backs against the wall. Longhorns have some momentum. First and goal at the one-yard line. Four straight stops by the defense. And the thing that's crazy, too, the Longhorns brought in their jumbo package for the first three offensive snaps. All right, they're bringing in like five 300-pounders to just mow the Oklahoma Sooners off the ball. They couldn't do it. Even to the point on fourth down, they had to resort to Xavier Worthy, pass to the left sideline, they couldn't get in. This is a completely different Oklahoma team, and it was best on display there in the goal line stand that preserved the lead, at least there early in the fourth quarter. Is this the validation that Sooner fans have been looking for for Brent Venables? Like they've been all backing him since the beginning, tough year last year, and then you come out and you do that against Texas? I don't know what else you could want, man. I mean, the way that they've improved, and part lately, like, they got to stay healthy. Dylan Gabriel didn't play in the game last year. All this other stuff, right? Like last year was a tricky year, man. It's a transition year. And we've talked too about the hurt that teams have experienced. And it was best on display prior to Oklahoma last year. It was best on display when Jimbo Fisher left Florida State 
for Texas A&M. And a lot of the players started looking around like, what, 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 what's wrong with us? Like, why would he leave? Why would he go to A&M? And there was a little hurt there, I think, for Florida State that carried over into really poor performances in the Willie Taggart era. Well, obviously, there was a, a whole host of issues with Florida State at the time, but there was a little hurt there, and you have to allow that pain to heal. So I think there was a little hurt last year for Oklahoma. I think the roster felt it. Obviously, they had some guys, some key guys leave. If Caleb Williams is still in Oklahoma, like it's probably a different animal, but still, there was a little bit of hurt there, man. And I, I think that you just had to allow that time to heal. It led to a very up and down season last year. And they finished, I think, on a high note. They played Florida State pretty dang well in the bowl game. They carried over some of that momentum, even though moral victories at Oklahoma are never something they're going to celebrate, nor should they. But there was a little bit of a moral victory with how they played a little bit down the stretch. That carried over to a great transfer portal hall, a bunch of young guys now playing key roles, a healthier quarterback with a better understanding of the offense. Now they're cooking with gas. So very, very exciting to see where Oklahoma's at. It was the validation. I couldn't be happier for Brent Venables and company that they were able to get it done. Takeaway number two. We will see this game again. Now, I'm not going to necessarily stamp it with a Greg guarantee. Okay, I'm not going to stamp it with a double G. We're not going to do that. But I have a hard time right now looking at the Big 12 and, and just the, in, the entire you know laundry list of teams that we see. There's currently three teams ranked in the top 25. Uh, Texas already beat Kansas. So they already have a game and a half lead, obviously, against the Jayhawks. And, and if you think Jayhawks are going to run the table and go 10 and 2, I, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. But we can talk about that maybe at a later date. But if you look at what Oklahoma has left on the schedule, they're probably going to be a, a pretty heavy favorite against just about everybody they play. They'll be at Kansas on October 28th. Obviously, a game in Stillwater in Bedlam. You think Oklahoma State's got that one circled? Yeah, I would, I would imagine so. And they looked better last Friday night in their win against Kansas State. And then that tricky, weird road game at BYU on November 18th. Those are really the three games that could potentially upset the possibility of Oklahoma getting to the Big 12 championship game. But honestly, do you really think they're going to go 0 for 3? you really think they're going to go 1 and 2? I, I personally don't. I think Oklahoma is staring at worst, at worst, at an 11-1 regular season, which would obviously have them in the Big 12 title game. And then for Texas, look at their remaining schedule. I already referenced they beat Texas. They beat Kansas, excuse me. But yeah, BYU at home on October 28th. You got Kansas State at home on November 4th, and you've played well against Kansas State in the past. And the other one I think is tricky, too, is a road trip to TCU. That's been a weird game for Texas the last handful of years. That'll be on November 11th. I can't envision a scenario where Texas loses at least one more game. I can't do it. And then conversely, do you expect another team in the Big 12 to have less than two Big 12 losses? I have a hard time envisioning this. So I really think that this is the first of two Texas and Oklahoma matchups that we're going to see here in 2023. Takeaway number three, Alabama continues to just grind it out. And, and we've kind of talked about this with Alabama. Are they as flashy as they once were? Are they going to be a team that, routinely hangs upper 40s on everyone they play. No. 
uh, is the gap between them and everybody else as significant as it once was? The answer is no. But they can beat everyone on their schedule. Everyone. I think Alabama can play with everyone. And we'll continue to believe that until another team rises up and, and potentially knocks them off. Is it possible? Absolutely, it's possible. Anything's possible. But they are in firm control of the SEC West at the moment. They have an unbelievable defense. I think their defense is terrific. And if you look at the relentless pressure that they were able to put on Texas A&M, they really did an amazing job. And in the red zone, we just talked about the importance of the red zone in the Red River game. I mean, think about the red zone defense that we saw from Alabama that forced AM to settle for a chip shot field goal and obviously had the they got AM behind the sticks there as AM was trying to close the gap there at the very end. They made Max Johnson look really uncomfortable. He completed just 14 to 25 passes, had the bad interception, got obviously flagged for intentional grounding in the end zone, which resulted in a safety. They were constantly applying pressure, but not just on the edges. They were able to push the pocket up the middle, which is something we haven't necessarily seen from Alabama in a while. You actually watched Max Johnson. How often in that game did he throw off his back foot? The answer is a lot. I mean, as a quarterback, there's nothing more uncomfortable than being pushed to the point in which you have to throw off your back foot. And then the other part of the conversation that everybody wants to talk about, Alabama's offense. And, and Jalen Milrow, since he was sat down for the USF game for them to give an evaluation to the other two guys that were in the quarterback mix, since that moment, he's 18th in total QBR. He's completing 73% uh, of his passes. And if you exclude sacks, which is a, we'll talk about that in a second, he's averaging almost eight yards a carry. Yeah, he's had a couple picks. And he has taken 14 sacks. But I think he does do a really good job of throwing the ball down the field. And that is going to keep a lot of defenses really honest. The big plays are something that you really have to account for, for Alabama. You look at the wide receiver position. We had talked for a while. Who's their number one wide receiver? Do they have a number one wide receiver? We had talked for a while about, well, Amari Nyblack, their tight end. Maybe he's their best matchup nightmare. Well, that wasn't the case this past weekend. Jermaine Burton broke out in a huge way, and they don't win the game if not for Jermaine Burton, I don't think. He had a 45-yard play. He had a 46-yard play. A career day there on the road in College Station against what I think is adequate secondary. Isaiah Bond had the 52-yard touchdown. And now through five games, Jalen Milrow has completed 11 passes that have gone for 30-plus yards. That, to me, is significant. So if you're going to take care of Alabama, yes, you might be able to get after the quarterback, but even on second and longs, man, he could throw it over your head. And that's something you have to be really, really mindful of. Now, I'd love to see a little bit more efficiency in the run game. And Alabama, they're still giving up an awful lot of sacks, but a few of them are covered sacks. Uh, a couple were overloads this past weekend. And I think Jalen Milrose's process, as he processes pressure, will improve as he gets a little bit more comfortable. But man, Alabama's starting to round into form. And while it will not always look pretty, the ultimate goal is to win the game. I know we get enamored with point spreads and good teams win, but great teams cover and all these other things. But 
Alabama is finding ways to win in a bunch of different ways. They played unbelievable on defense this past weekend. They did so against Ole Miss. And they have now started to find a little bit of an identity offensively. So I think the best is certainly yet to come for the Crimson Tide. Are we going to get a double G, a grad guarantee that Alabama plays in the SEC championship game? I can't give you a double G yet. A double G stamp of guarantee. Cannot do that just yet. Um, because I love what LSU is doing offensively. And if the game, like Alabama has to win games a certain way, which by the way, when I was in school, that's how we won too. Like there were games when I was in school where it's like, man, I hope we win 12, 12, three. Like I remember vividly beating teams, you know, 20 to 10. And it felt like a million points, even though it was 10 point margin, like we would grind people out and we found ways to get it done. And there was a time actually in mid-October of 2009, a season that ultimately resulted in us winning the national championship. There were times when we couldn't adequately throw the football. And when I say we, I mean me. Like We went four games without throwing a touchdown pass. But you know what? We had a great run game. We were really good at the line of scrimmage with our run checks and run audibles. Like We knew who we were. And we knew at the end of the day, all we had to do was play great defense, Impose our will at the line of scrimmage. I had to hit a couple play action passes. I had to be efficient in the pass game. I didn't have to turn it over. Don't make bad decisions. And you'll be in a position to win the game. Is it going to be 49-21? Is it going to be comfortable all the time? No. But it's effective. And it's been proven in the past that Alabama, even in the new era of college football, can win that way. Number four. Miami's situation at the end of the game was a complete disaster. I don't know how else to describe it. I tried to think of other adjectives. I try, you know, us on this show, we always try to find the silver lining. Okay. We always try to spin it forward in a positive way, but there is no putting a lipstick on this pig. It was atrocious. It was. And I hate it. I absolutely hate it for the players. I even hate it for Mario Cristobal. I hate it for for Shannon Dawson, his offensive coordinator. I hate it. It's a terrible way to spoil what was an incredible first five games of the college football year for the Hurricanes. Now, the good news is, hey, still plenty of season left, still in a great position to get to the ACC title game. You can get everything back and completely alter the perception of your team with a big win on the road at North Carolina this weekend. So it's one data point, throw it away, but let's learn from it. In case you didn't see what happened, okay? Miami's defense played great football. Great football. The offense was not good. Tyler Van Dyke had three picks, including one pick in the end zone, five total turnovers. It was an ugly performance. Sometimes these things happen. I mean, it happens. And they were almost in a position to still win the game, even though they played terrible throughout the course of the game. All right, they're sitting there. They're up 20 to 17 late in the fourth quarter. And then they have a 10-play, 52-yard drive that takes five minutes off the clock. They're down at the Georgia Tech 30-yard line with just 30 seconds left. All they had to do was just take a knee. Instead, they decided to hand the ball off to Don Chaney, who fumbled 
And in this situation, by the way, you never run, even if you do run a play, and plenty of people do, you never run it up into the business. You never run it up the middle into what is 10 converging defenders. If you want to run a play, we actually practice this both in the NFL and in college. If you want to run a play, you tell your ball carrier to avoid contact and to go down immediately. Do not fight for extra yardage ever in a situation like this, because if you're fighting for extra yardage, then you are holding onto the football as best you can. Your momentum as you fight forward is actually helping them strip the ball away from you. You give yourself up is what we've talked about. That's what you say. Hey, give yourself up. So while they could have kneeled on it, you still have to understand and make sure that everybody knows, give yourself up in this situation. No need to fight for extra yards. The ball gets jarred loose. Next thing you know, Haynes King and company take over with 25 seconds left. And then if we're going to make it just a whole nother level, you can't let anybody get behind the deepest defender under any circumstance. Like give up the field goal. Who cares? Just don't lose the game in regulation. And you have the second and 10 ball to the left and you allow Haynes King to escape the pocket. How you allow a mobile quarterback to escape the pocket in that situation is beyond me. And then you have Miami defenders that are running up trying to defend what he might do if he takes off. Who cares? Let him run. I don't care if he's a track star. He is. But it just can't happen, man. Obviously, Christian Leary reels it in. They score the game-winning touchdown, 44 yards, and it's all she wrote. But I'll take it one step further. And this is not like a poured-on Miami thing right now. It's not. Because in college football right now, clock management across the board is about as bad as I've ever seen it. We've talked about Miami at length. Every single radio station, television show in the world is talking about how Miami butchered the final play sequence and how it could have just been ended right there. But let's take it one step further. Texas A&M had three timeouts left with two minutes and 14 seconds remaining, down nine with fourth and goal from the two-yard line. Three timeouts left. Fourth and goal from the two-yard line. They could have just taken a delay a game. And instead of what would have been a 19-yard field goal, it becomes a 24-yard field goal. Who cares? It's a chip shot. It's nothing. Take the delay a game. That five yards on the field goal is not worth a timeout. Instead... AM fires the timeout. Now they're down to two. Two timeouts remaining. With Alabama still a six-point lead, they essentially erased 40 seconds off the clock because Alabama could take it down just a little bit further. It was an egregious mistake by Jimbo Fisher and the Texas A&M coaching staff. To call timeout to make the field goal five yards easier which in turn gets rid of 40 seconds of possible play clock is absurd. And then to make it worse in the same game, Alabama gets a first down on the subsequent drive. Great catch by Jace McClellan. Looked like they might review it. So Alabama tries to go fast. There's two minutes left at this point. Alabama's first and 10, two minutes left. The game's over. Game's over. 
All you have to do is hand it off once, then you take a couple knees. It's all she wrote. They are out of timeouts at this point. Well, they tried to hurry up so they wouldn't review it. And next thing you know, they have an RPO, a run pass option, as their speedball play, like speedball NASCAR, like going fast. Like, hey, don't review it. Let's go fast. Go fast. Get a playoff. Get a playoff so they can't review it. Well, the RPO is out there to the left. He's uncovered. Jalen Milrow tries to throw it to him really quick. And he one hops the pass, which stops the clock to actually give Texas A&M a chance. Like you have to understand and you got to absolutely preach to the players. Hey, under two minutes, man, just hand it off. Like we, we just got to get out of here. Like I, I don't care if they, I don't care what the circumstances are. You just hand it off. Do not take any unnecessary risk. So the speedball play, by the way, don't give them an RPO. We saw something similar, by the way, where common sense has to override the rule between Clemson and Florida State a couple weeks ago. Remember, third and one, Cade Klubnick tries to throw it out there. Similar throw to what Jalen Milrow missed. Cade Klubnick throws it out there on third and one with Will Shipley having just reeled off a nine-yard play. Well, he throws it out there, loss of two. Now it's fourth and three, incomplete, game over. Like Common sense has to override the rule. Situational awareness has to override the rule. Clock management has to override the rule. So as a result, it became a lot closer than it needed to. Alabama ends up burning a couple timeouts, then it's all she wrote. Or uh, A&M ends up burning a couple timeouts, it's all she wrote. But still, man, it was way too close for comfort for Nick Saban and his staff. And then one more. As if, as if three examples of bad management, game management, weren't enough. How about Missouri going for it on 4th and 32 from their own 28-yard line? Instead of punting it back to LSU with three timeouts left and a minute and eight to go. They went for it on fourth and 32. They obviously didn't get it. And they basically give LSU the game because of field position. If you punt it there, you still have three timeouts remaining. You're going to probably get 40 yards better of field position than going for it your own 28. Subsequently, Missouri has a three and out on the following series that took 21 seconds off the clock. LSU punts it. It gets downed at the Missouri five-yard line. So instead of starting at what might have been, I don't know, your 25, 30, 35, needing a field goal, I might add, you're starting at your own five-yard line with 41 seconds left. It's just bad. It's just really, really bad. Takeaway number five. Without Caleb Williams, USC would probably be like a seven and five football team right now. It's, it's kind of wild to just look. And granted, it's easy to say, well, if you take Tom Brady off the Patriots, what are they? Well, with Matt Castle, they went, what, 10 and six the year that Brady tore his ACL in 2008, I think it was. But Caleb Williams did not have his best stuff at all this past weekend. And right now, USC is sitting at 6-0 and thanks to a really favorable front-loaded schedule and a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. That's why. Because if you look at the game against Arizona, they were out-executed. They were out-prepared. 
They were out-schemed. They were out-rushed. They were out-hit. They were out-hustled. They had less discipline. They weren't as inspired. I mean, the good news is they weren't outscored because they found a way to win the game. Other than that, it was all Arizona in this game with a backup quarterback going into the Coliseum and making life really, really difficult. All that matters is you win the game, right? Survive in advance. I get it. But my goodness, man, like there's just something missing here. Now, Caleb Williams is superhuman. Absolutely incredible football player. And he did not play well early in the game. They found themselves in a huge hole as a result. And he finished really strong. And the two-point play in the third overtime, I mean, that's... if <laughs> I refuse to acknowledge that as a Heisman moment, by the way. I know a lot of people might. <laughs> like I, I love Caleb Williams. I've seen about 100 plays that he does just like that. I refuse to acknowledge that play as a Heisman moment. I just won't do it. But they have to find a way to turn the corner defensively. Like, I, don't, I don't really know how else to describe it. I mean, if you look at how Notre Dame will likely run the ball next week, and, and look, Notre Dame's reeling and all, all these other things, but you know Notre Dame's going to be ready for this one. Like, they're going to bounce back, I would imagine, and probably play good football next week. Uh, I'd be shocked if they didn't. Now, USC can absolutely go win the game but they have to be better at all three levels defensively. And they continue to talk about, well, and, and granted, I will give them credit. The interception there in the second quarter, that gave them life. That was, a, that was a terrible throw, by the way. He's on the far hash, throwing it way outside. I mean, that thing could have been picked by, I mean, I could have played corner and probably picked that one off. And that is not saying anything at all. I have no quickness and an average hands. But that was, you know, a big play. And, and I, I'm proud of, of just how resilient this team was. But all they do is they get a lot of hurries. But I, I don't I don't think that they're elite really at any point defensively. So next week we're going to find out. I mean they they have to take a significant stride on that side of the ball because this team with Caleb Williams is capable of beating anybody. But Caleb Williams can't do it by himself because when he was not at his best, this game was really ugly. Now he figured it out. But at some point, man, you need more than just your superstar quarterback to be able to pull you through. And that, I think, is something they're going to have to figure out very, very soon. I can't believe I'm saying this, but isn't that really like the point of the Heisman? Like this guy's literally carrying his team. He's the reigning Heisman Trophy winner. Like what he's doing is his numbers are fantastic. 22 to 1 touchdown internet interception. But like... Even if they do finish with like three, four losses, shouldn't he still be at New York considering he did carry the team as far as they did? Probably. I mean, we've seen examples of multiple guys win the Heisman Trophy on teams that were not in contention for the national championship. Lamar Jackson carried Louisville in 2016 en route to a Heisman Trophy. Uh, we saw Johnny Manziel in 2012 carry his team and route to a Heisman Trophy, even though they weren't necessarily within striking distance of the BCS title. You saw Tim Tebow, I think, win it on a you know, nine and four football team, whatever they ended up being that year in 2007. So yeah, it's certainly possible. And he's amazing. I mean, just absolutely amazing. And no one's going to leave him off their Heisman ballot, but he's, uh, he's a one-man show right now. 
And they they have other weapons. They have they have better players than what they're playing right now, though. That's what's I think a little bit irritating. I feel like they're better. They're more talented than what they're showing, and it's going to get them at some point. They're probably going to lose to a team they shouldn't lose to because, and it almost happened this past weekend because of their inconsistencies, specifically on the defensive side of the football. Takeaway number six: Carson Beck is the real deal, man. Now. Slow starts have been a talking point for Georgia for a while now. Okay. Like that's, there's, there's no doubt. I think partly though, because the staff kind of wants to work Carson Beck into the game. Now through the first five games this year, he was averaging about 50 yards in the first quarter, about eight plus yards per completion. So basically a lot of underneath stuff, just kind of letting him get his feet wet, not putting too much on his shoulders early. And as a result, they were averaging about three points a game in the first quarter up until this point. Just a bunch of dinks and dunks and just just methodically work our way down the field. Well, against the best team they've faced this season, they said, Carson, we're going to unleash you on the college football world. How's this for a response? 11 for 11 for 146 and two touchdowns in the first quarter alone. They scored on each of their first six first half drives. Four touchdowns, two field goals, and led 34-7 at halftime en route to what was a convincing victory. Now you look at the numbers, the final numbers after all, almost 400. Guys gone for 300 plus in however many games in a row. And I thought the defense did a pretty good job settling down because early on, Kentucky had a few things going. Kentucky was their own worst enemy with a couple of bad, bad penalties. One holding, one on a late hit after the whistle that got them way behind the sticks. So Kentucky was kind of their own worst enemy. But either way, if Carson Beck plays like that, George is going to be really tough to beat. I am so impressed with what I've seen from him. And I understand that one aspect that has been missing up to this point has been the deep ball. A lot of Georgia fans have been pretty disappointed with how inefficient they've been throwing it downfield. Well, it's not for a lack of talent and it's not for a lack of ability because they can definitely do it if they want to. And Carson Beck delivered a performance on Saturday against a good defense, a well-coached defense, with a lot of strange looks, Brad White and Kentucky defensively do a really good job. They make it hard on the quarterback. They don't often give you freebies. Well, the protection was good. And even at times in the first five or six weeks, Carson Beck has been back there and the protection hasn't been great. They've had busts in protection. He's still gotten the ball out on time. He is playing so well right now. I think he is a star. And while everybody is still going to kind of compare him to what came before him in Stetson Bennett, Stetson Bennett is going to make improbable plays happen. And it's really exciting and it's really fun. It's all the same reasons why we loved Johnny Manziel. Like Johnny Manziel and Stetson Bennett, very similar. Like run around. I never know what's going to happen. This guy's going to, he's going to start over here. He's going to reverse field. He's going to reverse field again. He's going to find, throw it back across his shoulder or back behind his back and You know, crazy things happen when Johnny Manziel and Stetson Bennett were on the field. So it was really fun and really entertaining and really just chaotic in a lot of ways. Well, Carson Beck's going to win more traditionally, and that will make his offensive coaches 
look really smart. He's going to make great decisions. He's going to get rid of the football. He's going to understand his protections. He's going to give what I think is an improving receiver core a chance. We already know Brock Bowers is a monster. That goes without saying. But what I saw from Robert Thomas, he's coming into his own. Marcus Rosenby Jack Saint, he's coming into his own. We have already seen Dominic Lovett be an elite slot receiver in the SEC. He'll be that again. Lad McConkey's only going to get more healthy as the season goes along. Arian Smith is only going to have more opportunities to create downfield if they can get the run game going. Georgia's offense is going to be remarkably difficult to defend as they continue to move forward in the season. Takeaway number seven. Ohio State forever has been a group that really leaned on their offense. And, and that's, that should come as no surprise. Look at the quarterbacks that they've had whether it's you know Justin Fields or C.J. Stroud or Dwayne Haskins or, or even J.T. Barrett to an extent back in the day. They're going to be a group that is going to score points. Like we know that. And ultimately, in this game, things got going there in the second half of the football, seat, football game. But so far, it's almost like they're going out of their way to try to create balance offensively. Now, I'm, not, I'm not sure why either. For instance, if you look at the game this past weekend against Maryland, they threw the ball 32 times and ran the ball 30 times. And they averaged less than two yards per carry. That's not good. They've played against two top 40 defenses this year, both Notre Dame and Maryland. There are five more top 40 defenses on the schedule. And if you think about the last couple games where we've seen them against Maryland and Notre Dame, outside of the 61-yard run from Travion Henderson against Notre Dame, their running backs are averaging about three yards a carry over the last two weeks. So the balance, I'm not sure why they're doing it. I think they need to kind of abandon that because why? Marvin Harrison's a monster and Kyle McCord's only going to get more comfortable. Kyle McCord targeted Marvin Harrison 15 times in his game. He had 29 attempts, 15 went in the direction of Marvin Harrison. He responded with eight catches, 163 yards. The rest of the offense managed just 219 yards on 47 plays. But I think right now the offense at Ohio State needs to put more on Kyle McCord's shoulders and lean a little bit more heavily on their defense because this defense is stout and legit. Offensively, I still think they're a bit of a work in progress. And obviously, knowing that what we're going to get down the road, you get 23 points against Indiana, you get 17 points against Notre Dame, you're going to need to find a different gear at some point when you face off against Wisconsin, potentially, on the road, against Penn State, obviously, we know Penn State's legit, and then, of course, against what I think is one of the best teams in college football in the big house against Michigan. Takeaway number eight, I want everyone collectively to start the chant. The chant that we always heard from the SEC at the end of a bowl game or a non-conference game, SEC, SEC, right? We always heard that. Doesn't sound as good in like, you know, big 10, big, I don't know if you can even do that. Pac-12, Pac-12, big 12, I don't know. But you can do it with this conference, ACC, ACC. ACC. Six weeks into the season, a league that spent the entire summer 
The entire summer, fending off rumors of their demise, a league that said had seven or six or however many people, I don't even, I don't even know how many different schools that said, we're leaving, we're out of here, we're not doing this. Well, they have three undefeated teams. They have a team in, I think, Miami that's still really good. And the league is starting to be come, or at least kind of we've talked about it. I can't recall a time in which the league, the ACC, felt this deep. It obviously starts at the top of Florida State. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the thumping of Virginia Tech. But it had been a while since Florida State had really been able to run the football. Well, boom. Clearly, it was an area that they were trying to emphasize. Trey Benson goes out, 200 yards and a couple touchdowns. So now that offense is starting to find a little balance, and maybe that will carry over here in the weeks to come. Louisville. Now, shamelessly, I will give us credit for rolling the dice on Louisville because we had them in the ACC championship game coming into the season. People laughed at us, but we took their laughs in good stride. Well, Louisville has some serious playmakers, okay? And when you have playmakers, you always have a chance, right? You always have a chance. A Jawar Jordan against a proud Notre Dame defense to go for 143 and a couple touchdowns is pretty dang remarkable. Jamari Thrash, eight catches, including a touchdown. Pretty dang remarkable as a number one threat at wide receiver. And then how about the defense? The defense will live forever in Sam Hartman's mind. He got picked off three times, a couple fumbles. And Louisville finds himself at 6-0 and in Jeff Brown's first season as the head coach. And if you look at the rest of the schedule, I'm, I'm just, just saying, don't, don't get too far down the stretch of starting. Hey, don't Louisville fans that are listening to this. I love you. You guys know I love you. Don't buy playoff tickets just yet. But if you start to look at this, man, they're, they're going to be, if, if it keeps going the way it's going and they take care of business the way they're capable of taking care of business, don't be surprised. If Louisville starts to find themselves as kind of that dark horse in the playoff race, six and zero, man, and they're cooking with gas offensively. And if they can continue to get Jack Plummer to play the way he's playing and playing at a high level, I think he's very capable of it. And Louisville becomes extremely dangerous. But don't sleep on North Carolina either. North Carolina, Miami this weekend, one of the games of the weekend. I can't wait for that matchup. But now Tez Walker is on the field after the NCAA finally came to their senses, well, sparked what I think was a pretty dang good performance from Drake May. Only threw for about 440 and three touchdowns and a dominant 40-7 to win over Syracuse. Miami, we talked about them. I still think Miami's really good. They were their own worst enemy this past weekend. And it's tough to know that they're going to be going in next week's game with a loss because they shouldn't have one. But if you look at the depth of the ACC right now, they are in a great spot to set up what could be a play-in game in their conference championship for one of the three or four mentioned undefeated teams. And 
as long as Miami can kind of flip the script and not let last week beat them multiple times, they're going to be in the mix as well. So I love what I've seen from the ACC. It's the best collection of ACC teams that I've seen in a probably almost seven years. Doesn't the ACC need to win a playoff game outside of Clemson? You know, and I know Florida State won one back in 14, but isn't it the playoffs before we start chanting ACC, ACC? Like, don't we need to get to that point before we start really getting in on the conference, love? Well, it's a little bit of tongue in cheek, buddy. I mean, come on. Like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily comparing the ACC to the Big Ten and the SEC right now, but hey, they are taking strides. Like, depth is good. Championship caliber opponents are good. I think a lot of people had their doubts about whether or not Louisville was legit. Well, they proved that they were this past weekend. People have had their doubts about Florida State. Hey, you know, they didn't play great against Clemson. They found a way to win. Yeah, they found a way to win. Like, they're really in a good spot, I think. And I think part of it, too, is that many people have long. I mean, look, I love, I love Joel Klatt. Like, I do. I, I think he's a good good, solid analyst, does a good job. I've heard him outwardly in the last three years call the ACC trash. So they have been like, they have been the punching bag of college football and they don't deserve to be the punching bag this year. They are playing really well. And even in, even in a year in which Clemson, which is usually the top dog, they've struggled, obviously. I think Clemson's still pretty dang capable of knocking off some really good teams. I know they're not ranked, and I know they looked average this past weekend, but I think Clemson is still a dangerous team, especially when you think about maybe knocking off one of their undefeated playoff contenders. Clemson could certainly do that at some point here in the future. Takeaway number nine. Michigan is too good for their own good. Now, you're going to say, what does that, what does that even mean? Well, if you want your players to start getting candidacy for the Heisman Trophy, if you want your players to have candidacy for the Bolitnikoff, well, people are just flipping the channel on your games because you're dominating teams so badly. I mean, team like they, Michigan's just winning games too easily for Dylan for JJ McCarthy to get the respect that he probably deserves. It's almost wild to think about it. They're too good for their own good. And I, I can't say it's totally surprising because up to this point, have they really played anybody great? Probably not. But a lot of people are now thrusting Dylan Gabriel into the Heisman conversation. Why? Because he had to deliver some late game heroics. Well, Michigan hasn't had to do that. <laughs> and based on their schedule, I don't know if they're going to have to. Granted, against Penn State and against Ohio State, maybe things will change. But here's a little bit, just so you know, what J.J. McCarthy is doing right now. I just pulled a couple of, of stats just, just to support how good he's playing. He might be, ladies and gentlemen, he might be playing as well as any quarterback in the country right now. Now, there are others that, that are getting more credit, like Michael Penix and Caleb Williams and and uh, Dylan Gabriel and, and, and Jaden Daniels and, and others. There are plenty of people that are getting a ton of credit right now, but maybe JJ McCarthy starts to get some as well because it's deserved. He's number one in college football right now in QBR at 93.6. He is third 
in the country in completion percentage. And two guys that are ahead of him, that's Florida's Graham Mertz and Oregon's Bo Nix, they average far fewer yards per completion, meaning they're dinking and dunking, whereas McCarthy is having to push the ball down the field just a little bit more. Nearly two-thirds of his completions go for a first down. 63% of his completions go for a first down, meaning they're going for 10 yards or more. Nearly one-fourth of his completions go for 20-plus yards. And not including the three sacks he's taken through six games, which to me speaks even more to his efficiency, he's averaging almost... 10 yards a carry. So he's unbelievable and is playing as well as anybody in college football. And yet nobody is willing to kind of go as far as to just look at the throws he's having to execute the pinpoint accuracy that's been on display and the progress that he's shown now in his first full year as the starting quarterback. And I know that that's a little bit of a, a reach for me because he started you know, the last 13 games of the year last year. But remember, Cade McNamara started the opener last year. J.J. McCarthy is playing at an outrageously good level. And then obviously defensively, they're on a whole nother level right now. But they also have two receivers that should be in the Bolitnikoff conversation. Both Roman Wilson and Cornelius Johnson are on pace for 1,500 receiving yards and 20 touchdowns between them. I mean, the rest of the team, they've aced every test that's been put in front of them. And it doesn't seem at this point like it's going to slow down for the Wolverines in the future. Takeaway number 10. And this is actually a question for all of my friends out West or anyone that has a real interest in Pac-12 football. Can any of y'all help me handicap the Pac-12 right now? Have we ever seen anything like it is the next question. Just to go through what they've done up to this point, the midway point of the season, we thought they'd be deep. I don't think anyone anticipated being them this deep. Seven of their 12 teams are in the AP top 19. 10 of their 12 teams are 500 or better. All seven of their ranked teams are still very capable, by the way, of getting to the Pac-12 title game. Now, Oregon and Washington will obviously clash this week after being off. Can't wait for that game. It's going to be a war. Two of the best quarterbacks in the sport going toe-to-toe. Two of the great coaches in the sport and Kalen DeBoer and Dan Lanning at both Washington and Oregon, respectively. This is going to be a war. They're in Seattle. College game day will be there. It's going to be the epicenter of the college football world this week. USC has all sorts of issues, but they still have the best player in the sport. Utah's 4-1. and one. Without their all Pac-12 starting quarterback, Cam Rising, who's likely to return this week. All signs are pointing to that. Oregon State is a run-first football team. Always have been, always will be. Well, they just scored 52, in large part due to the fact that DJ Uwe Ungalale threw five touchdowns. Justin Wilcox, in his tenure at Cal, seven years has never given up more than 50 points at home. Well, now they have because Oregon State just did it. If you look at what's going on with Oregon State's defense, that's that's a little bit scary. They were fifth in the country 
uh, but got gashed for, you know, 250 yards. But I digress. Still, really good team. Team that I have a ton of respect for. Team that I had in the Pac-12 title game in the preseason, partly because I thought their quarterback would be improved. And DJ Uyunglele is a significant upgrade from anything they've had in recent years. UCLA has one of the best defenses in the sport. Washington State and Cam Ward was only the fifth quarterback in a Power 5 school since 1996 to throw for over 1,300 yards and at least 13 touchdowns with no interceptions in his team's first four games. That's what Ward was coming into the game against UCLA. And then UCLA legitimately gave up one drive to Washington State. And that was midway through the fourth, through the third quarter. They went 74 yards in four plays, gave them a 17-12 lead. But that was it as far as what UCLA was able to consistently give up this past weekend. UCLA is incredible on the defensive front. And they showed it this past weekend against an offense and a quarterback that was red hot. But Washington State's still crazy dangerous. Colorado has been the story of college football season up to this point. They're four and two, and who knows what they're going to do down the stretch. The schedule gets much more difficult from this point forward. After the Stanford game, they should likely get to five and two next weekend. And after that, it gets really dicey. But still, they're the talk of college football. They're in the Pac-12, at least for the moment. Arizona took USC to the wire. Cal almost beat Auburn. Like You have 10 of your 12 teams that are 500 or better. Who do I think is going to win it? I have no idea. But I know this. The Pac-12 is as good as it's ever been, and it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Thanks so much for being with us. We so appreciate you guys coming to us wherever it is you're coming to us from, whether it's the podcast, if you could, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, you could just take a second, leave us a rating, leave us a review. We've been reading those, and we appreciate all of you for weighing in the way you've weighed in the last couple months. If you're on the ESPN YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up button right below. You can also follow ESPN College Football on YouTube. That'd be great if you could subscribe to the channel, if you will. It'd be awesome. We so appreciate it. And for all of us here at Always College Football, we'll be back on Wednesday, giving you some bigger picture topics that are on our mind, including maybe we do a little dabble on the Big Ten schedule release that came out last week. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. It's kind of dated at this point, but we will hit that on a Wednesday edition of Always College Football. For all of us here at Always College Football, and there are a lot of us here this week, for Dylan, for Mark, for Jack, for the other Jack, for Jake, for Sharif, and for Cohen, I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have a wonderful day, and remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.